Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Amen. John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Uh, We are continuing this series leading up to Easter in the second chapter of John. Uh, This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and it kind of serves as a parable for what Jesus does throughout all of his ministry. And that's why we're looking at John chapter two. And uh, I love preaching the Bible. It's my favorite thing to do. And John is one of the most challenging people to preach because he says so much in so little. Uh, God gave him such an amazing mind that uh, it's really hard to decide what I don't say to you guys. So here in a minute, I'm going to we're going to last week we went verses 13 through 16. Uh, We got three whole verses done. I tried to get 17, and that's a whole sermon by itself. Uh, So I'm going to skip 17. We'll come back to 17 because I think God's saying some really powerful things to us in 17 and verse 22. And we're going to spend our time on that chunk in the middle, uh, 18 through 21, because Jesus makes the most outrageous claim he makes in all the Gospels. He makes the most offensive claim that he makes in all of the Gospels. Somebody's already crying about it, and I haven't even said what it is. (laughs) That's how offensive this claim is. And so we're going to look at that today. I'm going to walk line by line through it, building kind of a theological house or a theological case. And then at the end of it, I'm going to give us an implication for what it means for us. If this is true, how does it change the way I live as an individual? How does it change the way we live as a church? Now, to be fair, there are over 100 (laughs) implications, but I think I'm only going to have time for one of those. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, because this is insane. You want to make sure I'm not making this up. Uh, We're going to start in verse 18. And what we see in this whole section is Jesus coming to cleanse the temple. And then he's going to make a statement about the temple. Last week we saw him cleanse the temple. And this was before he actually uh, went to a wedding and turned water into wine. The greatest party ever. And now he comes to be the greatest party pooper ever in verses 18 through the end here. And he's coming to the temple, but before we can talk about the temple, you need to understand what the temple meant to the Jews in Jesus' time. Now, we can't even fully comprehend how powerful and meaningful the temple would have been to them because Jesus has so transformed Western culture that we think God is everywhere. Even secular people who do not believe in Jesus think you can connect with God outside of a physical place. But it was not that way in Jesus' time. Everybody in the ancient world and still in some places in the eastern world knows without doubt that God can't be everywhere. God has to have a place. God couldn't possibly dwell with humanity. There's too much brokenness and too much darkness. There has to be a place in which God is contained. There has to be a place in which heaven and earth meet together. If I want to connect with God's spirit, there must be a place that I go to where I can make sacrifices so I can walk into this place without being struck dead by the holiness of this God. This is what we see in the the Jewish tradition. They believe that the temple was that place, not just a symbol of the place, but it literally was that place where God was, where heaven and earth overlapped. If you want to know where God was, the temple was where God literally dwelled. And Jesus in this text is not just talking about like the, the temple. When it says that word temple, it's talking about the innermost part of the temple, the holy of holies. To give you an idea of how respected this area was, there was only one person who could enter the Holy of Holies each year, and that was the high priest. And the high priest had to make sure that he had no sin in his life. He had to make sure he was completely atoned for because the Jews believed that if he walked into the Holy of Holies with any sin, he would immediately be struck dead by the holiness of God. (laughs) In fact, they they would tie little bells around his ankle and a rope. 
And, you know, when he went in, they would listen for the bells. And as long as the bells were moving, you knew he was alive. But if the bells stopped, that meant that he was dead. And so they would use the rope to literally pull the high priest out of the Holy of Holies because nobody else could even go in there. Now, with that in mind, with the sacredness of that in mind, listen to what Jesus says, because this is stunning. Verse 18. It says, so the Jews replied to him. And by the way, they're replying to what he said in uh, chapter two, verse 16. Uh, This is after he's kind of cleansed out the temple, cleansed out the people. It says he told those who were selling doves, which represents the spirit of God. Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So he makes that outrageous claim. And the Jews ask what we all probably would have asked. They say, what sign will you show us for doing these things? In other words, what are your credentials for doing this? I try to think of of what this would be like, what Jesus is doing this week. And there's really nothing that we have that compares to it. But the closest thing would be like if you were on a tour at Washington, D.C. of the White House and uh, you just like you're like, you know what, forget this tour. And you walked into the Oval Office and you started moving stuff around. Uh, You'd be dead within minutes. Right. People would say, what authority do you have to walk into this office and start changing things around? Well, that's what Jesus does. He comes in to this most holy of places and he's with authority telling people to get these things out of here. He's acting as if he is God himself. He's acting as if he has some sort of authority. And the Jewish leader is like, we don't even know you. Who are you? And then Jesus' response is the most outrageous thing he says. Verse 19. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. What we learn here is that Jesus is not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I am the place where God and humanity meet. I am the place where God's spirit is. I am the place where God dwells. They couldn't even imagine this in 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 the ancient world, that there would be a person calling himself a temple. It'd be like if we were at the Statue of Liberty together and I said, you know what? I am the Statue of Liberty. You'd say, what? Have you been taking your medicine, Blake? What, what, do you, what do you mean you are the Statue of Liberty? Well, it's, take that times ten and you get a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. I am the temple. And he says, destroy it and I will raise it in three days. Now, because this is so outrageous, because this is so amazing, they don't even actually get it. And then the next verse, we see that Jesus is mocked and he's misunderstood for what he has said. Verse 20. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. Now, this temple is the same temple we're studying in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, that the Jews rebuilt after captivity, uh, which was about 500 years actually before Jesus. But uh, as we came into like the year 20 B.C., 19 B.C., Herod, who was the leader of the Jews, uh, wanted to curry a little bit of favor with them because he was not very well liked. And uh, so he decided to give the temple a facelift and he began to remake the temple. He spent a bunch of money uh, on the temple of the Jewish people. And in fact, it never was actually finished when it was destroyed in 70 AD. uh, The works of Herod still were not complete that they had started back in 19 BC. But what's really interesting about this temple is that Jesus very likely could have been one of the builders that was a part of Herod's project. So we often call Jesus a carpenter, but really the literal word is a builder. Jesus was a builder with his father. And during this time, the majority of Jewish men who were builders were working on the temple of Herod. So I find it a really interesting irony that Jesus himself is the one who is laying these physical stones on this physical temple. And all the while, you know, in the back of his mind has to be 
that this temple will not last and that he is building a greater temple. He is building a temple not of bricks and stones, but of living bricks and living stones. He's going to build a temple of people while he is here building this temple that the Jewish people think is the temple of God. When in reality, he knows this is not the temple. I am the temple. And one day I will send my spirit and my church will be the temple. And so the Jewish people, they think, who are you to say that you're going to build this temple or destroy this temple? And then you're going to rebuild it all by yourself in three days when it's taken us 46 years up to this point to build this temple. Again, you can't blame them too much for this misunderstanding. Because if I was at the Statue of Liberty with you and I said, tear down this Statue of Liberty, you would not think I was talking about myself. You would think I was talking about the big green thing standing behind me. And this is the same thing that happens with the Jewish people. They misunderstand in two ways. The first way I've already talked about, they think he's talking about a physical temple, but he's talking about his body. The second way that they misunderstand this is that you'll notice Jesus didn't say he would tear it down. He said they would. They assume that Jesus says he's going to tear it down. He didn't say that, did he? He said destroy this temple. In other words, you are going to destroy this temple. There's a great irony in this, a prophetic note, if you will, because they do destroy the temple of Jesus. They are the ones who crucify him. In the book of Acts, Peter, my favorite guy in the New Testament, Uh, is preaching to the Jewish leaders. And with great boldness, he says, Jesus, the one you killed, they are going to be the ones who destroy the temple. And yet they misunderstand Jesus completely by thinking that he is saying he is going to destroy the temple. And Jesus is mocked for this. More than mocked, he's actually tried for it. In Mark chapter 14, when they're trying to make up fake charges to kill Jesus, you know what they say? They say, this is the man who said he's going to destroy the temple. And it was based partly upon those charges that they got the the verdict that they were hoping for, the guilty verdict, all because they misunderstood. And in fact, even while Jesus is on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, he is mocked for this. Everybody mocks Jesus for what he says in this text. Look at Mark chapter 15, verses 29 and 32 with me. It says, those who passed by while he was on the cross were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, ha. The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, and they're saying this with sarcasm, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Our Savior is on the cross dying for the sins of the world. And the thing that amazes me the most is how he just lets this misunderstanding be misunderstood. And he does not try to correct anybody throughout this. This is the God of the universe. In Colossians, it tells us he holds everything together. At any moment, he could let go. And every molecule, every atom in this world would separate on his command. Legions of angels could come and take him off of that cross. He was not on that cross because he could not get off. He was on the cross because he gave himself up for the world. What they did not understand was for this new temple to take place, there must be a death. There must be a sacrifice. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 tells us that when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. What does that mean? Why is that there? Well, the curtain was in that place where the Holy of Holies was. It separated us ordinary common folk. In fact, us as Gentiles, we wouldn't even be close. We'd be on the outer courts of the temple. But for those who got the closest to it, there was a temple curtain that separated them. And when Jesus died, that temple curtain tore in two, meaning that the Holy of Holies was no longer just for a certain select group of people, but that through the sacrifice of Christ, we were all made pure enough to enter into that holy space. 
This is an amazing thing that Jewish people would have literally had their minds blown over. You know, if I was preaching in a Jewish synagogue in the times of Jesus and saying these things, I would see purple dust everywhere from your brains exploding. And I know that in our culture, we don't fully understand this. But this is the most amazing thing that Jesus is saying, that through me, I can enter the holy of holies. And then he says something even more amazing in verse 21. When you think about the implications throughout the New Testament, what this means for you and I as a part of the church, verse 21 is absolutely amazing. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You say, what's so amazing about that? Well, if you look through the New Testament, what does Jesus say his body is? His body is his church, his people. We are his body. And in fact, after his resurrection, uh, Jesus leaves the earth. You know, it'd be cool if Jesus was still here. <laughs> I would love that. It'd make everything so much easier. But Jesus ascends, and he actually says we should be glad that he is ascending to the Father, because when he ascends, he will send us someone greater. He'll send us a spirit, his spirit. And the reason it's greater is not because of quality, but because of quantity. That now his spirit is in each of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Try to think of this. Try to imagine this as a Jewish person who sees the Holy of Holies as a place ten times as special as the Oval Office. And think about now what Jesus is saying. That I am a sacred space. I am, in part, the place where humanity meets God. God Himself dwells in me. The Holy of Holies is inside of me. And as a collective body, as a collective church, this is the place where if people want to know what Jesus is like, if people want to know what God is like, they ought to come to us. Because we are the place where God dwells. He no longer dwells in Temples made with human hands. He dwells in people whom He made in His own image. This is a stunning thing to think about. In fact, in John chapter 4, Jesus is uh, at a well with a lady, a Samaritan lady, and uh, He's trying to explain this to her. <laughs> it's kind of a funny scene because Jesus comes up and He didn't tell her who He is. Uh, Jesus likes to trick people, I think. And uh, this lady is drawing water and Jesus said, you know, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't have to draw water. Because I got, I got living water. And she's like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, and uh, Jesus begins to talk to her and, and it comes up uh, that she has actually had five husbands. Uh, actually, Jesus says something along the lines of, you know, go home and tell your husband. And she said, she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, I know you've had five and you're not married to the one you're living with. Ooh, you know, Jesus gets a little spicy on her there. And uh, she, she says, I perceive you to be a prophet. Yeah. Uh, and so then she tries to change the subject, as you probably would in that awkward situation as well. And she starts talking about worship. And she's asking Jesus, where are we to worship? Where are the Samaritans to worship? And Jesus doesn't tell her where to worship. He tells her how to worship. Why? Because Jesus knows soon worship will not be a place. Worship will be a posture. Worship, that sacred place, will be with us wherever we go. Because God makes his home in each of us. And he makes his home in us as a collective group of people. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the temple is no longer a physical place like we are in, but it is a place within each of us. That God comes into our own souls and he renovates them as a place for his own dwelling. And that Jesus, the head of the church, is that ultimate temple, that ultimate place where if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, you come to him. Now, you guys aren't fully uh, excited about it as I am, and that's okay. But what I want to do now with the rest of our time is maybe flesh out just one of the ways that this might uh, cause a difference in the way that we live our lives. One of the implications of this, if you will. And one of the, the great implications of this, of what Jesus is saying here, is that our place, 
Our home, our soul within us is no longer ours. It's a repurposed place. It is now set apart for holy actions. In fact, when Paul is uh, getting on to the church in Corinth, they had all sorts of problems. Uh, if, if you think like Las Vegas is Sin City, you should read some of the letters Paul wrote. Those people were messed up. Uh, and he's talking to them, and the way he gets them to stop sinning, or the thing he uh, appeals to in, in regards of their sin, their racism that they had, and their sexual immorality, is he tells them, hey, don't you know that you are a temple? Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says. Pastor Paul says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. In other words, when you're in the temple of God, there's just some things you don't do. Uh, one of my favorite pastors I like to listen to, he's with Jesus now, his name is Dallas Willard. And he, he asks audiences, when he's talking about this, he says, now I want you to raise your hand. Uh, how many of you have ever committed some sort of sexual sin? And of course, you know, everybody chuckles and they raise their hand because everybody has. And he says, now how many of you have committed a sexual sin in front of your mother? And everybody gets really uncomfortable. Why? Because there's certain things you don't do in the presence of your mother, right? Like the, the, her presence alone will drive you to not do certain things that you might do otherwise, And he says, this is what it's like with God. This is what it's like to be in a sacred and holy place. There are certain things you do not do when you are in the presence of a holy God. And I think we get this. We get that certain things are set apart for certain things. I just made a a quick list of some things that I know you guys have never done. You don't practice drums in a library. You know why? Because the library is for reading and quiet. Uh, I know that you don't eat dinner in the bathroom. That kind of grosses us out, doesn't it? But you same people will go brush your teeth in the bathroom. And we think these ancient people, they're so foolish the way they do it. But we have these same kind of weird things. You know, I'll brush my, and I use the same toothbrush for months. You know, it's, it's actually gross when you begin to think about it. But in our minds, we have these sacred practices, these sacred places, the way that we do things. And likewise, you probably don't brush your teeth at the kitchen table. We would think you were weird. Why? Well, because that's not what you do at the kitchen table. Uh, and, and you don't put your car in the living room. Well, some of you might, but that's in Woodward, uh, you know, people seem to drive through buildings every six or seven years. Some of you might. I don't know. But most of us, we don't put our car in the living room. And you all probably have these various rules about your house, about what people can and can't do in certain rooms. In my house growing up, we were not allowed to wear our shoes anywhere beyond the front door. It was a sacred kind of thing you did. And if you wore your shoes in the house, you just had to get a look from dad and you knew that you had messed up you know it was like one of the first things i told my friends was you better take off your shoes otherwise it's not gonna be good because in our house it's a sacred kind of thing that you don't wear your shoes others of you you don't care you know you wear shoes everywhere you want in the house because you have decided what is sacred and what is not you've decided what is set apart for what certain things well in the same way if we are always in a sacred place if god is always with us then there are going to be some things that are just simply not acceptable for us to do And this is actually kind of terrifying when you think about it. It can be overwhelming if you think about it. And I think this is why some of us, even as Christians, will try to make certain places sacred places. We are living in a building that could become a living idol if we're not careful. This place, some people will think, is more sacred than any other place that there is. And I think we do that because it's simpler for us. And there are some things that people say, I hear them often, that make me understand that they do not understand what Jesus says when he says this thing about the temple being everywhere, about us being sacred places. I'm sure that you've probably heard some of these too. Uh, One thing I hear often is people say, don't lie in church. 
You know, oh my gosh, you're going to lie in church. And I mean in the physical place. Like as if our lies are somehow worse here than they are out there. Because this place is where God is. And so if you lie here, you're in worse shape. Or sometimes people will say to me, you know, Blake, if I ever walked into a church building, it'd be struck with lightning and burnt down. Some of you are like, yeah, I know people who they walked in here would be struck with lightning and burnt down. Kind of a joke that we say. Well, what are we saying? God can tolerate the sinner out there, but man, if he ever came into this holy place, then that would be where God drew the line. No, you went into the place with the steeple. I'm done with you now. Here comes the lightning bolt. What are we saying about God? Well, we're saying God has a place where he's more uniquely holy than he is when he's not here. It's really interesting for me as a pastor when I'm around people who don't know I'm a pastor, because you look at me, you don't expect me to be a pastor. Uh, You expect me to be maybe a youth minister at most. And, uh, and people will say cuss words or they'll talk in a certain way and then they find out that I'm a pastor and all of a sudden people begin to apologize to me. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry you spo- I spoke those words or I said those things. But what are they saying? They're saying, you're a holy person. You are more holy than me. You are more sacred than me because of the work that you do. And so I will not cuss in your presence. Which to me is always funny. Like, just be who you are, wherever you are. But I understand it from a mindset that would say, You know, the pastor is set apart and the church is set apart as a different place. But what Jesus says is different. He says we're all priests, every single one of us. And the temple is everywhere. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you actually believed this? Like if you lived this way, would it change the way you spoke when you were around certain people? Would it change the way in which, you know, you decided on what you did and what you did not do? If you believed that you were always in the temple, if you were always in the sanctuary... Would it change the things that you watch? I know for me, I was really convicted of this this week. But there are certain places where I act a certain way, and there are certain places where I act a different way. As if God's presence is not everywhere I go. As if God is not a sacred space within me, because He dwells within me. Another quick implication of this is that God is now the owner of who we are. In fact, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians when he says we're a temple. He says basically as a Christian, what we've done is we've invited God to take over ownership of our life. God, my soul is run down. I cannot do this on my own and I want to invite you in to renovate my place. Have you guys have ever tried to share a space with someone? Uh, You know how frustrating it can be when you have two people living in one place. This is part of what makes marriage hard. When people have different philosophies of the way things ought to be in the place that you live. You know, Taylor, uh, my beautiful wife, and I have very different philosophies on cleaning the house. My philosophy of cleaning the house is you do it once a year. And, and the way I clean is by shoving everything in a room that we don't use. <laughs> this is gross. But I, my entire college career, I never changed my sheets. Now granted, it was short. Don't judge me. I didn't know people washed their sheets until I got married. My wife, on the other hand, cleans uh, probably the right way, I guess you could say. And that is as we go. She loves to clean. She cleans every Saturday. She vacuums all the time. But one day they couldn't even find me because she made the bed with me in it. This is my wife, you know. And let me tell you something, friends. This creates a little bit of conflict. When I think I'm doing really good if I help cleaning once a month and Taylor wants me to clean every other day. So every other day, I'm like, oh, do we really need to do this? You know, it's a little bit excessive. And she's like, what? Excessive? I wanted to clean yesterday, but I was trying to be kind to you. (laughs) You understand this if you've had shared space with someone. We have shared space with God in our hearts. But it's more than shared space because he owns it. 
If you've ever shared a space with someone and they actually own the place, you know how difficult that can be as well. And you would be very frustrated if I walked into your house and I began to redecorate your stuff. You know, if I come over for dinner and I begin to take down pictures and wall, oh, you have wallpaper. This is ugly. You know, let me, let me help you. And I begin to rip things off the wall and I begin to take my paint and I paint the walls purple or something because I like Barney. I don't know. You'd be like, dude, you can paint your house whatever way you want to paint it, but this is not your house. This is my property. But in the same way, Paul says, you are no longer your own. You don't get to decide what you do. There's no room for racism in your heart because God dwells there and God decides. There's no room for sexual immorality in your heart because God dwells there and God is the one who decides. And so God is the one who tells me what to get out and what to put in my soul. And if I believe this, then it changes the way I view God and it changes the way I view the temple because it is a shared space. Now, without the gospel of Jesus, this is a very condemning message. This is the kind of message where you leave and you feel very bad about yourself when you begin to think of all the things you've done in the sanctuary of God. If this is true, Blake, then I've done some evil, terrible things in the presence of God, in the holy of holies. And I get you, because I'm right there with you. And yet, the gospel says this, that Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all for us, so that we can live without guilt. See, in the ancient people, they they understood this. This is why when they walked into the temple, what is the first thing they did? They brought an animal to be sacrificed. Otherwise, the guilt would overwhelm them. They needed to lay their sins on this animal and have the animal destroyed in front of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to stand in the presence of God. And yet Jesus comes and he says, I am that sacrifice. Because of me, you can live in this temple. And what Jesus wants for us is to continually to look back at him. To continuously remember that when Jesus died for us, he didn't just die for the sins that we had already committed, but he saw everything. Jesus is God. He stands outside of time. It's like he looks at the the entire history of humankind on a piece of paper. He's outside of it. It's something we can't even fully understand. And before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says, before it even started, he said, I want Blake Farley. He said, I want you. And he knew all of our sins in that moment. He died for them. Completely. That's why on the cross he says, it is finished. Not it's finished if they feel really bad and they ask me uh, for forgiveness 173 times in their lifetime. No. Jesus said, I want it all. I take all of their sin upon myself and I die for it. He shed his blood so that we might always know we are holy enough to be in the temple of God. This is outrageous for us to even begin to think about. We begin to think, yeah, but surely he doesn't know about this terrible thing that I did. Surely I'm not worthy to be in God's temple now. But friends, the truth is God knows the sin you are going to commit three years from now on a Saturday night. The sin that you think was never going to be forgiven by God. And on the cross, he took that sin upon himself 2,000 years ago and he died for it. And he said, it is finished. And the guilt and the shame that drives you away from God is not from God, it's from the enemy. Because Jesus did not come to condemn, he came to save. And when we realize that, it doesn't cause us to sin more. (laughs) Like If you understand the grace of God, you're not going to say, well, the grace of God is here. I can sin all I want. No, if you understand the grace of God, you know that kind of love is transforming. It's that kind of love that will change you. It's seeing that kind of love that makes you want to be better. It's knowing that kind of love that begins to help you understand the presence of God all the more. And what begins to happen over time is we begin to redecorate the house of our soul. But it doesn't happen overnight, does it, friends? i got a lot of things in my soul that I know don't belong there. 
But I also know that my God is gracious through Jesus Christ. And he gives me the power through his spirit to begin to change those things. As I begin to realize that I live in the temple at all times. Friends, let me pray for you if you would. Jesus, thank you for this text. God, thank you for John chapter 2 that you inspired it to show us your ministry. Lord, I pray that we could begin as a church family to see all space as sacred space. Lord, that we would realize you have come not to create new temples, new buildings where people come to dwell with you, but you've created a people. And that in those people, Lord, you dwell. Right now, if you would, guys, with your eyes closed and head bowed, I want you to pray. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And Zach, you guys can go ahead and come up. Father God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've asked us to do. Lord, I pray today for anybody who feels guilt. I pray for anybody today who carries shame around with them and they feel as though they are not accepted in your sight because of what they have done. Lord, I pray that they, those who would feel overwhelmed about their access to the Holy of Holies would today, Lord, in a new and a fresh way, see you for who you are on the cross. See you for what you did. And because of Easter... Because you came and gave your life, Lord, we can have complete and total access to you. You are a good, good father. Lord, and I pray for those of us who maybe are stagnant or stale, and we would remember that coming to a place like this and putting on a religious front is never what you wanted. You wanted us to live as people who always saw ourselves in the holiest of places because the holiest of places goes with us wherever we are. Our souls are the place where you dwell. Jesus, thank you that you love a sinner like Blake Farley. Thank you that you love a sinner like Blake Farley enough to allow him into the most holy of places. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship this God. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.